<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 562 with my guest, Dr. Amishi Ja. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. You you have not come here by mistake. You have you have come here because you are out of options. The website for this show is metalpod.com. I am not a therapist. Uh, let's get that let's get that straight. It's usually apparent about 30 seconds into this podcast. I'm a former TV host, former stand-up comedian current nut job. Let's dive into some surveys before we uh, get to the interview with Dr. Ja. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Aaron, and he writes, my family moved to the U.S. when I was seven. They bribed me with video games in exchange for my agreeing to get a circumcision. I think, I think we all remember that barter in our childhood. It hurt and sucked, and after it was over, I continued to have lifelong scars. That, as a kid, I was certain, meant my penis was too ugly to ever show to any girls. Fast forward to my 20s, and there were two new developments. One, I got what I didn't know at the time was psoriasis, and the glands of my penis would spot red and sometimes crack and even bleed. Two independent genital issues. Lucky me. Two. I had an actual romantic and sexual prospect on the horizon that was going really well, which was terrific because I was a very shy kid. I knew why I had the scars, but not the spots. So I mustered the courage and decided to get a dermatologist appointment to check out the spots. After all, it could have been an infection and perhaps unsafe for this partner. I intentionally found a male dermatologist in my network and booked it in hope for the best. After I got to the examination room, the doctor's assistant, who turned out to be a young and attractive female, started asking me questions. I didn't have the courage to tell her I was uncomfortable and this wasn't the plan. When she asked to see my genitalia, I told myself she's a doctor. And as I pulled it, pulled it out, this attractive medical professional looked at it and yelped, Ugh, thanks for that one, asshole. Silver lining... 
She gave me steroids that cleared it up in weeks. I get flare-ups and I have to manage it, but that's hardly so bad. Even better, no partner I've ever had since ever indicated that they gave the slightest crap about spots or scars on my penis. I was so certain when I was young, but I was so wrong for decades. It was all just in my head. Apparently, partners seem to have better priorities. And I, I hope you nicknamed your penis the comeback kid and, re- and refer to it in the third person. Underwear slides off. Ooh, look at the comeback kid. He's got some opinions about this situation. <laughs> oh, dude, thank you for sharing that, man. And I'm so glad. I, uh, I very much relate I had undescended testicles as a kid and had a couple of surgeries and was so ashamed. And I would say it took me decades to realize that none of my partners gave a shit about what my testicles looked like. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Gone Girl, and I'm just going to read a portion of uh, of her survey. A lot of it actually has not been filled out. Uh, darkest thoughts. There's a train that passes across the parking lot of my college. I see it every morning, and I can't stop imagining myself stepping out in front of that train. It quickly flashes across my mind as I walk up to my first class. Well, I don't know about you guys, but it is rare... <laughs> that I see a train or cross a bridge and don't have the image of using it to to take my life. Not that I want to, it's just kind of like an unwanted uh, thought. But this is the reason that I wanted to, to read her survey. Uh, Darkest Secrets. My dad killed himself when I was 13 and I didn't go to his funeral. I'm 22 now, but his death has loomed over me since the night my mother told me. I didn't want to tell anyone when it happened, and I felt uncomfortable around the people who did know. Talking about it felt and continues to feel futile because there's nothing to attain in doing so. My parents separated when I was an infant. I was raised by my stepdad from the age of five. My dad had only been in my life for four years. Uh, every Sunday until he overdosed on pills in a Las Vegas hotel. I'm not sure if it matters, and I feel gross by trying to make it matter, but he was my dad. He was my dad, and he killed himself. What the fuck am I supposed to do? Do I need to honor him in some way? How do I show that I care that he died? These are just some of the thoughts that are always on my mind. These questions do not seem to have answers. Writing this makes me angry with myself because I feel that I'm trying to make something that is not about me all about me. I guess my secret is not only that my dad committed suicide, but also that I am a lousy human being. Well, you are clearly not a lousy human being. That's the mean part of your brain punishing yourself. Um, And, you know, my thought is you don't need to feel or do anything around this. It's nobody's business what you feel about your dad. And you don't need to honor him in some way unless you feel like you want to. Um, A lot of us, when somebody in our life dies, 
don't experience the emotions that we feel we should. I felt guilt for years after my dad died because I, I felt like I should be feeling something more. I've shared this on the podcast before, but I didn't really cry. And it's the only time I've cried since my dad died uh, until about six months after he died. And, you know, it, it is what it is. I didn't have a lot of bonding moments with, with my dad. He was a pretty distant guy. He, I knew he loved me. He provided for us, but he was just checked out. And sometimes it's hard to have feelings about, about somebody who just wasn't there emotionally. And that's okay. That's okay to feel that way or to cry about the fact that you didn't have the relationship with them that you wished you had had. So I don't know if that helps, but, um, you know, what's important is this was an opportunity for me to talk about myself. This is from uh, the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a guy who calls himself can't wait to be old and flabby. Well, as somebody who has arrived, let me tell you, we welcome you with open arms. Uh, He writes, I got to thinking that we rarely get into the mental tribulations of the elderly. Do they just grow up one day and realize it's all not worth thinking about because it won't make a difference and and time is running out quickly? Um, That's a good question. And I was thinking that that very question the other day as I was finishing up dinner. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, as I slipped into my uh, cardigan and uh, noticed that the temperature inside was 95 degrees, uh, <laughs> I thought, let me, let me think of some other stereotype. Uh, is there an age at which you can no longer be diagnosed with a mental illness? No, I don't think so. Do you just get so old that you and your inner dramas no longer matter or relate to any of the younger generations? Uh, Therefore, you're just lumped into the old people bin where hopefully you just don't cause too much trouble. And if you're lucky, you get to die in your sleep. (laughs) Not asking you, Paul, a handsome young boy like yourself, can we get some old timer on the podcast? I'm talking like 80, 90 would be better. We can try to figure out if they have a fucked up mind that isn't related to a great war or something. I have a small unconscious bias. Old people are awful. Oh man, that made me that made me laugh. And and I assume that part of you is is serious uh about this. Um and I don't know if I'm considered an old person. I'm 58, so I'm halfway through my life. I strongly believe I'll live to 116. But I do have a fear that my life will start to degrade uh, around 115, that my tennis game will start to slip, that the mountains I'm climbing won't be as tall, I'll have difficulty finding a slipper that really fits. But in all seriousness, um, we had a a guest on, Don Morgan, uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago. And he, to me, is a great example of somebody who continues to stay fit mentally and 
spiritually. I, in my support group meetings, I've met more than a few people in their 70s and 80s who who do not stay mentally and spiritually fit and are fucking crabby and who I did not want to spend time around. And then there are people like Don who, when they walk in the room, they just they just light it up and they help people. And I feel closer to Don than I ever felt to my dad. Um, you know, it's it's like the corny saying, your family isn't who births you. It's It's who you choose to be close to. I don't know if anybody ever said that. Uh, but thank you for, for those questions and for, uh, insulting half of the population. This is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself sugary and, oh, this is so good about her ADD. She writes, like my thoughts are a spilled bag of marbles that I'm trying to scoop up with a fork. That is fan-fucking-tastic. About her anxiety, like I'm a dog that knows enough to know the vibes are off, but not enough to actually know what's wrong or what I did. Oh, those are so good. Those are so good. Thank you for those. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Death of the Male Ego. Uh, and it's filled out by a trans woman um, who writes, uh, I fear that I will be beat up or killed for making the wrong public restroom choice. Wow, can you imagine what it is like to live with that fear? You know, and the people that are are, are transphobic are like, yeah, but what about my fear of potentially being uncomfortable for five seconds in a, a projection of my of my crystal ball? I fear that my family will never come around to accepting my trans identity. I fear that I will be homeless. I fear that this country will devolve into outright fascist ethno-state shit and I'll be executed for my trans identity. Can you imagine living with those as, as genuine, possible fears? I can't. I can't. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com, online therapy. If you're, if you're interested in knowing more about it, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from this podcast. Uh, I'm a big believer in not only online therapy, but BetterHelp in particular. They do not share your personal information with anybody. It's a secure site. You can um, talk to your therapist either by video, by phone, um, live messaging. Um, Their therapists are vetted. They're licensed in all 50 states, and you can... Go to the link that I told you about, betterhelp.com slash metal, and you fill out a questionnaire, and they will uh, match you up with a counselor if they find one that they feel is a good fit for you, uh, and you can get a um, discount of 10% off your first month of, of counseling, and I'm just a big fan of it. Uh, you need to be over 18, so check it out. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. 
When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And then finally, this is an excerpt from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by um, a guy who calls himself Milk in a Bag. And he writes, um, I'm filling this out because I made a small comment on a public Facebook page, a, quote, liberal page, and basically just said we need to look at both sides of politics and not pretend one side are the good guys. And the replies I got were so gross and hateful and belittling that it made me cry. A grown fucking man was crying over some strangers being lunatics. So I figured I should get it out somehow. I feel alone yet surrounded by hyenas. Mass hysteria is gripping the country, and I'm scared. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little better. I've stopped crying and realized I don't want to die. I just want to become a Canadian. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) Well... (laughs) I'm here with Dr. Amishi Ja, and uh, you're an author, you're a research scientist, yes, and you got a book 
coming out called Peak Mind. And it's about attention and being present. And I'll let you tell me more about it. But um, before we get to that, tell me about the the research that you've done. Yeah. Well, the entire book, and I appreciate you mentioning it, is really a culmination of the research effort that my lab has been undertaking at the University of Miami for well, and prior to that, University of Pennsylvania, for the last 20, 15 to 20 years. And as you already mentioned, I study attention, how it works, what causes it to fail often, what its vulnerabilities are, and then more recently, how we can train it. And, and this would even include ADD, ADHD? Most of the participants in our studies do not have a clinical diagnosis of any kind. So, okay. um that's why it'll be interesting to talk to you on this right. particular show, because everything we've learned is that though it may not meet a clinical threshold, things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, ADHD, these are all part of a continuum of human experience and human traits. Um, but really what has happened over the last several years is working with populations that are high stress, high demand groups like military service members or firefighters, um, even medical and nursing professionals, for whom the conditions that can degrade attention are prominent in their professional life, which can have all kinds of consequences, and then trying to find solutions to help them. Give me some examples of the things that get in their way. Well, there's kind of big three that we're finding for attention. Stress, meaning perceived distress, threat, and that can be psychosocial threat or you know, really fear for your life, and poor mood. When we experience those str those kinds of states, attention tends to not be able to focus on the task at hand. And then we see compromise in people's ability to perform. So how would a firefighter get rid of the very real fear of being harmed or possibly oh, dying? There's no intention that one should be able, be able to or actually can get rid of any of these things. These are part of the human experience. For certain professions, they are prominent in, their, in the lives of these individuals. But given that those circumstances degrade attention, the last kind of effort in my lab, the most recent effort, I would say, uh, you know, understanding how it works, understanding how it's vulnerable, and then the third thing is training it. That becomes really important because if you cannot change the circumstances, you've got to change something else. And as a neuroscientist, the thing that I've learned is that you can change the way the brain functions by default if you train it enough. So the work in my lab has really investigated introducing people to mindfulness practice as a way to strengthen attention so that it becomes more like mental armor. Mm -hmm. uh, that you know, mindfulness itself becomes a form of sort of mental armor against things like stress, threat, and poor mood. Before we get to some of the solutions that you have discovered, let's talk about the the process and the things that you have discovered about the brain. There's a, a picture on your website of somebody with a hundred electrodes <laughs> on their brain, and there's a mention of uh, MRIs in yeah, there. And I'm, yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by oh, the okay. science Great. of it. So don't worry about getting too geeky uh, <laughs> with with stuff. No, that sounds great to me. Yes. Yeah, so in my lab, we use a variety of techniques. We use functional MRI, 
brainwave recordings, which is that funny swim cap you saw with the electrodes on it, and then performance measures, and all three together. And, and we also ask people, you know, how do you feel? How's your attention? But all of these together give us a really good profile of various aspects of attentional functioning. When we put people in the scanner, of course, with functional MRI, we get a really nice picture of the structure of the brain and, and more recently, the functioning of the brain. And we've been able to identify not just me in my own lab, but the field has been able to identify the prominent brain circuits for various types of attention. And are they engaged in anything while they're oh, being yeah. scanned? So both types. So there are tasks in which, and if you if you ever come to Miami, you got to come visit us in the lab. I would so, love to get this done. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're in the scanner, and you you have a little you know like a little response pad, kind of looks like a video game console. Um, there's a mirror so that you can see the actual stimuli that are displayed, and then we do experiments in there, the same kind of experiments we'd have you do if you were sitting in a chair in front of a computer in the lab. And so the experiments are tasking or like engaging various aspects of attention. And then you respond to the various questions that are asked to you for us to gauge your level of uh, success at completing these. Mm -hmm. So maybe it would help. It would help if I say a little bit about kind of how attention works, because when we yes. when we start talking about the solutions, um, that will be very helpful. And it also goes to the things that you're asking me regarding these different metrics that we use in the lab, because they've given us so much insight into the targets for where something like mindfulness may start transforming or changing brain function and brain structure. So just to say that you know everything I'm about to say, we've done done experiments. Experiments have been done that have identified specific circuits for the various systems. But as a whole, attention is this multifaceted, complex system that we um, evolved to have to solve a very big problem that the brain had. Like even way, way, way long ago with our ancestors when life was not as complicated as, you know, <laughs> social media feeds and mm -hmm. phones buzzing. The reality is that attention allows us to sample the world in, in a way that is manageable for the brain. So the ba brain's big problem is that there's far more information than it can fully process. So this subsampling, you know, kind of getting bits and pieces of the full environment to then interrogate, to piece it together in a way that you can understand is, it, is attention's job. And there's multiple ways that we can actually sample the environment. One way and by the way, when I say environment, I just don't mean out there. I also mean within us and even in our own minds. I got you. So, so it's kind of our brain doing an MRI of... <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It's like trying to get a picture of what the heck's going on. That's cool. I like that analogy. Um, so one way in which we do the subsampling is based on the content, like left side of space, right side of space, particular color in your environment that you're going to kind of tune into. And... That's very powerful. That's probably what most people think of when they hear the term attention, focus. And the kind of metaphor I like to use for this is is that it's like a flashlight. So it allows us to kind of, if we're in a darkened room and we point a flashlight somewhere, we get granular information about that part of space. And it helps us maneuver through. If we're, if we're literally in a darkened path, we need a flashlight so we don't trip over anything. But the cool part about that same brain resource, and it's formally called the orienting system of attention, is that we can direct it internally as well. So if I say to you, you know, think of the last um, really uh, delicious meal you had. You know, probably it wasn't on your mind right before I asked you that, but you can certainly do that. And 
Essentially, what happened is your long-term memory kind of recalled that particular meal. The flashlight of attention was shining upon that. And then you can get back that information at a more granular level of detail. You might even get a little maybe savoriness and, you know, like a little uh, mouth-watering feeling if it was really, really good. Um, so you're, what this shows us is that our attention is so powerful at kind of changing and recalibrating even our perception and experience in the moment by pulling out, focusing on certain details. But that's not the full story about attention. That's one important system. And I want to just mention the other two kind of quickly because it gives, it helps paint a profile. And in particular, I was excited to talk to you because the kind of counterintuitive aspects of attention is it's not just for behavior and action. It actually has a lot to do with our psychological well-being and our health, psychological health. But before we go to that, maybe just finish right. up with the other systems. And, and, and so that might be the umbrella uh, under which dissociating uh, for somebody who's in something that's just too heavy for them to experience. That Would that be something that would fall under the attention umbrella? Or maybe. is that something completely different? Maybe. it's In some sense, it, it for sure can because you're not at all attending to what's happening around you. You're in a completely different space. You are disengaged entirely from your present moment reality. But even if we don't go that far, I mean, if we want to talk about that now, it sounds good. But I would say even just talking about this orienting system, this flashlight, the examples of how it relates to um, psychological health would be something like depression. And in the context of depression, which we typically think of as a mood disorder, mm -hmm. where the content of the mood is depressogenic and negative and um, you know, it leads to a whole bunch of, of obviously consequences. But from the attentional lens, it's the flashlight is getting yanked by certain kinds of mental content, in this case, negative content, and it's getting stuck there. So even if we try to pull it away, we can't. It kind of flows back there. And that's the important thing about this system is it's not just about willfully directing it. Thankfully, we can. It's about it getting pulled. So like even if you're on that darkened path and you hear a loud sound behind you, sure enough, you're going to turn back around from where you heard the sound and point the flashlight. But unfortunately, with certain kinds of mental content generated within our own minds, the flashlight will get yanked over and over again, and you can't disengage it. So when we start talking about how to train it, it has that value as well. It's about um, better control and better resistance when it does get pulled. Okay. So the first one you mentioned was the flashlight. Yes. And then you said there was two other components. Yeah, there's two other components. Um, so the second one is almost the exact opposite of the flashlight. If you characterize the flashlight as narrowing, almost a laser beam focus, privileging certain content over others, you know, in, in geek out terms, it'd be high signal to noise ratio. The signal mm -hmm. is prominent and everything else is noise. The floodlight is the second system, formerly called the alerting system. And it, it has, as you can see by my use of the term floodlight, broad, receptive, does not privilege any information over any others, but it does privilege the here and the now. So when you're alert, you are really caring about what's occurring now. And I always like to think, even when I'm driving, if I see like a flashing yellow light near construction or something, it's that mindset. Like if you saw that while you were driving, you'd be kind of broad, receptive. You're not you don't even maybe know what's weird about this. You know, like maybe it's construction. Maybe it's a weird traffic pattern. I don't know what, but I'm ready for it. And my attention is available so that if I need to use my flashlight, I can bring it online and do whatever is required next. So I hope that 
that piece maybe makes sense too, that it's quite different, but we understand, oh yeah, we pay attention in that way as well. And then the third system is essentially needed for the management of the other two, something called executive control, which I think you've probably talked about um, on this show, the notion of, and you brought up ADD already. So executive control is really about, I mean, the like I said, in some sense, it's allowing us to hold goals in mind. And it's ensuring that whatever whatever our goal is, our actions are aligned with it. So when that's not the case, executive control can um, kind of reinforce the goals. You're like, hey, remember, this is the thing you're trying to do. Uh, it can also inhibit information. It can update the goal. And it can allow us to switch between things. So all of this is so that goals and actions align. And you can see how it may, it may and it does, in fact, guide where the flashlight points with the receptiveness of our present moment attention with the alerting system gives information regarding where our attention actually is, what is going on in this moment, in the now. And all of these work in this sort of beautiful coordinated fashion when everything is going well. And when you take a picture of someone's brain, do you see which area of yeah. the brain each of those things? Yes, you do. Where, that... where are they? As if I have any... <laughs> fucking idea what you're going to say. <laughs> well, you know, I want to just say, like, oftentimes when I talk about attention, they'll be like, uh, or executive control, they say, oh, yeah, the frontal lobes. Most people know about the frontal lobes. Mm -hmm. But the reality about our current state of brain research is that we're way beyond a particular region doing a particular function. Now we talk about brain networks. And that basically means kind of like a, it's, think of the, think of the analogy of like a subway stop. Each of the stops on a subway line would be nodes, groups of neurons. And the job of this network is to kind of uh, hum together. And activity is always coordinated in all the, all the different nodes on this network. And that's distinct from another network that has its own nodes. And some of them may be overlapping, but there are distinct brain networks. And now we can look to see what are the functions of these networks. And it ends up all three of those systems. You know, what I described as the flashlight, the floodlight, the juggler, or I don't know if I said juggler before, but that's the way I describe executive control. Um, these are tied to specific brain networks. So the orienting network, the flashlight, it's something we call, um, you know, it would be essentially the the the, <laughs> the technical terms may not matter, but it's, it's nodes in the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe that communicate to the back of the brain, so to speak. All the sensory systems, it's like it's, it's doing the directing and the advantaging of our sensory input, for example. The, 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 sorry, the floodlight is something that is represented by what we call the salience network. And the prominent brain region there is something called the insula, which is picking up these sort of salient stimuli as we are noticing what's happening in our environment in the moment. And then executive control, of course, is dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, parietal cortex. I mean, of course. Like you said. Of course. The regions don't matter. But what I think is very cool is that each of these brain networks has their own net uh, – each of these brain systems, attentional systems, has their own networks. And they tend to talk to each other in a coordinated fashion, but they're not active at the same time. Really? They, they are antagonistic toward each other. Really? Yeah. And that is, I mean, the kind of notion of the brain at war, <laughs> meaning um, some things are advantaged and other things are inhibited, it seems like a weird thing. But we know when that doesn't happen, we can get a lot of problems. So right. problems or unusual states, like psychedelics, for example, mess up, in, and I'm putting that in quotes, they alter the antagonistic function of various 
networks. So we get these unusual experience on those on those types of substances. But we know this from our own experience. So if I if you've ever had the experience, and I, I'm sure you have, that you're immersed in something, you're very focused, and I know you do this beautiful woodwork, like you're you're working on a piece, right? Or you're a musician, you're you're really interested in, in really getting this piece down, musical or or woodwork. Highly focused state, you know, the orienting system and the and the um, executive control are are really kind of engaged. You've got the goal and now it's doing its thing. If somebody walks into the room in that moment and calls your name, it might take you a beat before you realize that they've done so. And that's because when we are focused, we tend to not have this broad receptive stance. So that's just one example, but they're they're constantly vying for um, dominance or prominence. And they're all three, by the way, antagonistic toward one other system, which we haven't talked about yet. But since you asked about the brain and you gave me permission to geek out, I'll just tell yeah. you, um, is something called the default mode network, which may be something you've potentially talked about. So the default mode network um, was a mystery. In our early days of functional MRI, we'd put people in the scanner, just like I described. And I said, okay, Paul, do this experiment, attentionally demanding experiment for five minutes. Okay, and I'm going to be scanning your brain. You hear the loud, beep, 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 beep. the scanner goes off. And then I say, okay, now we're just going to have you rest for five minutes. Same thing, the scanner's on, but you're not doing anything in particular. You're basically just resting, is that, is that what, is what we called it. And we did this over and over again, so five minutes on, five minutes off. And we were really excited in the early days of functional MRI to find out, oh, you know, it is the case that we have these brain networks with the frontal lobes when they're paying attention in a way that makes sense. But this really bizarre other pattern emerged, which is there were networks that were active, in particular the one I already mentioned, the default mode, when we told people to rest, it's like, what? What is going on where every time we ask people to rest, a particular network comes online? And so we just start asking people, when I told you to rest, what were you doing? And they'd say things that you imagine somebody would say when they're just resting. I was thinking about lunch. Or I was thinking about why the heck did I sign up for this thing? Or gosh, I'm cold. Or everything that they said back to us for the most part was the main character of their story was themselves. Really? So self-related thinking. And and it, we kind of became a joke where at some point neuroscientists are like, let's not call it rest. It actually is an – rest is an acronym. It's rapid, ever-present, self-related thinking is what people are doing when you tell them to, to rest. And now we know that the default mode network is involved in internal attention, something we might even call mind-wandering when you're having this mental time travel – where you're thinking about yourself in the past and the experiences you've had or about the future and what you might do. Um, but the central character is pretty much you. That makes total sense. <laughs> and yeah, and the, and you know, this is also very interesting because when you're attending internally, you're not thinking about the environment. You're not thinking about other people. You're not thinking about the task at hand. Often you are lost in thought. Thinking about yourself dying broken alone. <laughs> Yes, doomsday thinking. Are there other things to think about? <laughs> I'd love to know. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I hope that helps kind of paint the picture of it what does. we're doing. Yeah, it does. So then talk about after you kind of became aware of these different networks functioning and being antagonistic towards each other. What was the next step in saying, hey, how can we utilize this information and improve people's lives? 
Well, that was trying to see when the networks became problematic. So we know that we'll get this pattern, but when does it get kind of dialed down? And so doing things like giving people attentionally demanding tasks and seeing what shows up when they make an error. Like they're just doing a task and they mess up, right? And it ended up that the default mode kept showing up during errors. So it looks like what often happens is that when people go internal in quotes, they're not paying attention to the task anymore and they're missing the information that occurs. And that ends up relating to every single system. Like I said, you know, the default mode is antagonistic toward everything else that happens. Mm -hmm. So going back to what we were talking about earlier as it relates to these these kind of kryptonite states, I sometimes call them like stress, threat, poor mood, under under those states, what we're noticing is that attention is no longer in the present moment. It is actually probably usually in the past or the future in, in unproductive ways. And so going back to the flashlight, when the flashlight is yanked towards certain depressogenic content, it's usually not what's happening right now. It's a past memory and you're looping on it or you're catastrophizing about the future. So there was already an example of like, okay, this mental time travel capability where the central character of the journey you're about to take is you happens when you're trying to do something intentionally demanding. Not only is your performance really messed up, but it can contribute to psychological disorders too, like like I said, depression. Or when your um, when your alerting system, that floodlight, is overly active, meaning everything feels like a potential. You know, you're, you're not just vigilant; you're hyper vigilant. You can't prioritize things. Well, you're not. That's that would be the the executive control. This is just observing what's going on. So it's going back to that notion of that flashing yellow light while you're driving. Mm -hmm. But now everything in your life is a flashing yellow light. It's like everything requires that same level. Of, I got to be ready. I got to be ready. Mm -hmm. I got to be ready. Very common in things like anxiety and PTSD is that the, the those kind of moments occur unfortunately more often. You know, the thing that popped into my mind when you were talking about um, the the default mode kicking in and taking our attention away from the task at hand is the athlete who, you know, maybe it's yeah. a golfer on the final hole. And instead of thinking about their swing, they're thinking about, you know, don't hit it out of bounds. You know, if you don't win this trophy, you're never going to win another one. And yeah. And it contributes to... Totally, yeah. And I think it's in many aspects of our lives, when we already are transporting ourselves somewhere else, we have no capacity to deal with what's happening now. It could be the athlete saying very negative things to to uh, him or herself, or have like a false confidence, like, you got this, you get it every time, right? Even that takes away from attention to the present moment. So, I mean, I think this is just, uh, you know... I, things like depression and anxiety we talked about. And then for the third system, for executive control, um, really the juggler starts dropping the balls, like in disorders like ADD, when the goals and the behavior are kind of not aligning quite uh, quite as well. So all three of these systems can have a very important function, uh, are very important for our general healthy functioning, mm -hmm. but can also get disturbed and disadvantaged for our not so healthy functioning. And then, but there's something I wanted to make sure I, I mentioned because I'm, I don't want to paint this picture that this going internal and letting mind wandering occur is is always bad. It really is only problematic when you're trying to get something done. 
And technically, like in my lab and in the field, we'll call that mind wandering. Mind wandering is when you're having off-task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity. And what we know is when people have these conditions, I mean, these moments where they're mind wandering, the next moment is typically filled with a little bit of a little bit of sad mood, poor mood. Um, and it doesn't matter what the content of the mind wandering was. It's almost like a cost to reentry back into the present moment. Really? Yeah. So that's kind of an odd thing. But I think my bigger point was just that this default mode, it's not, it's agnostic whether with respect to whether it's beneficial to you or not. And, um, you know, seeing, I see your dog right here and I just always think about this notion of mind wandering is really talking about almost like what we do when we walk our dogs, right? Like stay on the, uh, stay on the leash, but then your dog maybe like smells something and wants to walk away and you're kind of like, that's the mind wandering moment where the dog is not staying on the path, but is kind of veering all over the place. That would be, there's a task at hand, walk in a straight line. And then even if they've done whatever they need to do while you're going mm-hmm. for a walk, but they're just kind of going all over the place. And when we have a task at hand and we deviate from that task, that would be called mind wandering. So we, we essentially, attention is like a leash for our mind to keep us on track, whether it's making sure we're, we're paying attention to what we want to, that we're vigilant when we want to be, or that we're goal focused when we want to be. But, and, and when we, when we do wander off, we get the default mode. But then again, going back to our, our furry friends here, think about what Gracie's like when you ever take her to a dog park, right? Mm-hmm. You, you just so much joy just runs all over the place there's no bounds to probably her i mean i'll just speak for myself with my dog it's a joy to see that kind of unleashed um fun and same thing with our own mind if we allow the broader category of what mind wandering is representing spontaneous thought letting the mind go wherever it wants to go it's very beneficial and it can actually increase our positive mood we can have positive visioning and we can um even plan in more productive ways and solve problems in more productive ways so that also yeah. would activate the default mode you know the thing that that comes to mind is when you're watching somebody do improv and it, it there's a phrase in improv don't think yeah that's the, yeah. the mantra of the ucb uh improv school and you, sometimes you'll see somebody doing improv and it's it's like they're channeling something and i imagine they're in that state of yeah. the dog playing in a dog park they're not judging they're right. just letting it come through them exactly very beneficial thing and and can be entertaining when it's done well as an improv performer might do the only problem and i'll just mention this because it kind of ties back to the thing you asked me about at the outset which is solutions to vulnerabilities of attention. If we let our mind wander, meaning, sorry, if we allow spontaneous thought, let's not call it mind wandering, which I constrained. If we allow spontaneous thought, there may be certain neighborhoods of your own mind that you go to and may get stuck. So you think you're just letting the mind roam, but you might end up in rumination or worry or catastrophizing. And so even though it can be beneficial, we got to watch for that. And we can train to watch for that. So in some sense, the solution we've come to in the lab for all of this, better attentional control, better attentional capacity, reduced mind wandering, and better ability to benefit from spontaneous thought, mindfulness tends to help with all of those. So for uh, spontaneous thought, the goal is 
to have it in the present moment rather than thinking about the past or the the future? No. Spontaneous no? thought is completely unconstrained. Literally wherever you're going to go. You want to smell the freshness of the flowers nearby? Do that. If you want to um, think about some event randomly that pops into your head, go for it. It's just free flow of conscious experience. So then what delineates that from the default mode? That also activates the default mode. Spontaneous thought is the broader category that activates the default mode. It's it's There are sub-nodes, as you can imagine, there are sub-networks within the default mode. One of those networks tend to be related to more self-focused internal attention. But the default mode in general is what we call the spontaneous thought generator. And um, it's it's not a problem, like I said, unless you're trying to do something else. Gotcha. So what are some of the solutions that you have yeah. discovered? Well, that's what I mentioned, the word mindfulness. And um, have you talked about mindfulness much on this? Quite, quite That's what a, I figured. Quite I mean, a bit. From what and, I could see from my scrolling, and, yeah. And I don't think, uh, you know, other than human connection, I don't know if there is another tool yeah. that is as helpful for improving the quality of life as mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I would say when I started this research, not only did I not know about mindfulness, I never thought it would have entered my lab's work. But the more I started looking into it and experiencing it myself because of my own kind of psychological crises, um, in particular crisis of attention, it became very clear to me that this is a tool that not only is helpful to me personally, but is something we can put to the test in the lab because attention is central to it. Most people nowadays, when you hear about the term mindfulness, um, aren't really talking about the attentional aspects, but it, it ends up that it's quite important for um, for the route by which, the mechanisms by which mindfulness can benefit us. So let's take the example of, of someone who's doing transcendental meditation. And you're when you're taught it, you're given a mantra, which is a meaningless phrase. That it's you... not always meaningless. No? <laughs> I mean, some and... of the, the, typically the Sanskrit phrases are not meaningless. They're given oh, okay. on purpose. We just don't tap, most of us don't speak Sanskrit. So. Oh, okay. I never realized that. But I was, I was given a, a, a mantra with, with no meaning attached to it by my meditation teacher. And the, uh, according to her, when I think of the mantra, the, the, the brain that's thinking about the past or the future um, kind of chills out. I'm able to be in the present moment and uh, I kind of cycle down into a place where bliss can, can be achieved. Uh, what might be happening in the brain in that moment? And is the default mode kind of being temporarily turned off? Where, where are we going? I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I'll just tell you that I'm not, I have no expertise in transcendental meditation. Um, and I have no expertise in bliss other than rare <laughs> moments in my own mm -hmm. life. But I mean, I think that, and I want to be clear that when I talk about mindfulness and mindfulness meditation, it's that doesn't equal transcendental meditation. When I think of the term meditation, it's a broader category and it's really having, uh, engaging in, let's see, how do I put this? Engaging in a particular mental activity to cultivate a specific mental quality. And I think transcendental meditation is a great example. And through the guidance of a, of a teacher, 
of achieving these transcendent states, as you said, experienced often as bliss. So it's a particular type of thing you do gotcha. when you described it, and you get there. Mindfulness training is also a particular thing you do and get somewhere. Compassion training, same idea. In particular, for the things I study in my lab, mindfulness, mindfulness is about paying attention to our present moment experience without a story about it, without editorializing about it, or reacting to it. It's that observational stance that we can take toward uh, our experience. Mm -hmm. And so the practices that are prominent in mindfulness training will emphasize those. It, there's a lot of overlap, for example, in focusing on a, on a mantra or a phrase and focusing on your breath. Mm -hmm. And the intention probably as your teacher guided you was when your mind wanders away, you notice you're lost in thought, come back to the mantra. That's right? exactly what she said. So it's really good at these concentrative aspects. Both are. Mindfulness training, in addition to concentrative aspects, has other things that it's training to do, in particular that observational stance. Uh, the second thing to th say is that um, uh, oftentimes, especially when it relates to specific phrases or a cultural overlay or a particular worldview, maybe people don't want that. And so my interest, because of the kind of populations I work with and I bring mindfulness to, is what can we offer that is truly brain training and doesn't require any particular orientation toward the content that you're teaching them. So sticking to body sensations, sticking to attentional functions, and supporting people um, ha tends to be a pretty – a more kind of broader way to reach uh, different kinds of groups. It uh, doesn't mean it's the only one that's effective. It just happens to be the one that I study in my lab. So in your book, you have 12-minute exercises to help uh, yeah. cultivate – Mindfulness would, would that be an appropriate well, really, way or attention? It, it would. It, it definitely is. Cult, it's a mindfulness exercise that we're finding through many, many studies improves attention, protects attention, especially to those kryptonite conditions of stress, threat, and poor mood. So, give us some. If uh, I don't want to spoil the oh no your, no your that's book. fine oh no 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 the whole you know it's if it were as easy as me saying it once and people were good to go I would love that but unfortunately right. that's not the case and that's really the brain training perspective that I'll say these networks that we just spent a while talking about they're hard to change the default mode is extremely prominent in fact fifty percent of our waking moments our attention is not in the task at hand so if we want to train our default we're gonna have, if we want to change our default. We're going to have to train for it. Mm -hmm. So I'll ha be happy to describe uh, one of the practices. You know, it's it's interesting um, talking about the difficulty in shaking the the default mode when you know we we want to be someplace else. Uh, and, and one of the things that they teach you in recovery or suggest to you is thoughts of others and being helpful and being of yeah, service. Absolutely. And, uh, the times that I have done that, I experienced these transformative states Absolutely. where my problems are either not in my mind or I have <laughs> I can pull back and see a different perspective that it's not all about me. Yeah. Yeah. Very powerful. In fact, um, in the book, I describe a, a, one of the practices that are part of the suite that I offer is something more in the category of compassion and connection practice. And just like you were saying, there are many ways we can try to pull out of the absorptive, self-obsessed, self-centered way of being. One of them is to cultivate these capacities to focus and notice when we're not in the here and the now, when we're lost in ourselves or in our, in our, lost in our thoughts. 
Another way, which is actually tied to that second aspect of mindfulness, this observational stance that we can take toward experience, is is something called, not to again give too much of a technical term, but something called decentering or diffusing, so that we're taking a bird's eye view of our moment to moment experience. We're like, and we speak to ourselves in the third person, quietly, privately. Mm-hmm. Um, we take kind of a self-supportive orientation as and doing that by looking at ourselves in that third person as we would another human being, mm-hmm. like a child or a loved one, it can be so powerful because you're not fused. You know, you're not the center of the experience anymore. You're an observer. And in the prism of fear and selfishness that we normally filter reality through, uh, I, I think is is pulled away yeah, a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that if you're watching a movie and you know it's a movie and it's the front of your mind, um, that's a very different experience than living such an experience. And oftentimes our experience of fear or challenge is not playing out in real life. It's playing out in our own mind. So, you know, the, the kind of shorthand of this kind of decentering orientation or bird's eye view is, remember, thoughts aren't facts. So I'm mentioning that because in some sense, what you just said of caring for others, focusing on others is a very powerful thing to do to kind of pull ourselves out of that um, self focused or even self-obsessed right. sometimes. And not around. to be confused with codependency. No, 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 no. Um, but the, what I was going to say, these connection practices, separate categories. So so everything we said, I think that, that you're almost treating yourself like another person. Mm-hmm. And you're also cultivating the capacity to to treat other people in a way that is more responsive and attentive without fusing yourself to them. This distinction between like sympathy and empathy and compassion. Like compassion in many ways is not even resonating with alone. It's not it's not it's not feeling what the other person's feeling. It's an acknowledgement of the other person's suffering and then acting on behalf of alleviating that. So there's this there's the distancing because you're not in it. You're not in it. You're you know that they're in it and you feel your heart resonates with that pain if it is in fact a painful experience. But there's something beyond that. It's like take action. That's why I love what you just said. It's like do something to help somebody else, and it really does help you yourself. It gives back and you know manyfold. And as opposed to trying to fix them, which I think comes from the ego and and a sense of wanting to control. Yeah, you know, it may be similar to the other, and that we we don't want to see somebody else suffer. But to me, the intent of being there for someone else is much different than the intent of wanting to fix them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The starting view is an acceptance of what is in some sense, an acceptance even of what another person is presenting to you as, and then moving from there. Yeah. When we're in that mode of wanting to fix people, we miss all the cues of what's happening in the present moment because we have this preconceived notion of how the universe should expand. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, you're bringing up such a good point because we can have – because we can have stories about other people, right? What needs fixing? Um, And we can have stories about our own life of what is transpiring. Um, And those stories, by the way, really constrain attention. It's like if you you have the view that somebody is always wronging you or – is always irresponsible or always anything, right? Then every piece of data you're going to allow in has to confirm what is already held. 
And this is another place that sort of attention and our relationships with other people matter. If you can, instead of even reframing the story, because that's still in the space of story and conceptual conceptuality, what if you deframed, like knock the house down, like there's nothing you're holding on to. Just allow what the person is is presenting with, with a freshness and see how that goes. Like it's a very different way of orienting to people. And that would be connected to uh, compassion? Compassion and mindfulness. Yeah. It really, centrally mindfulness in that moment because you're taking an observational stance to something occurring in the here and the now. So give us some uh, exercises yeah, or an yeah. exercise. Sure, I'll give you one exercise which is actually kind of foundational to every mindfulness um, mindfulness activity. And it really is, you'll, you'll, you'll see the similarity to, similarities to what you described with with TM. But of course, we're not going to be, there's no phrase, there's no worldview. It's about first, you know, you might ask yourself, and, and by the way, the 12 minutes would be work up to it, work up to it. Don't just jump right in if you've never done it before, because it can be quite challenging to do. Now, just, and also before we even describe the practice to remember what I said, the mind wanders a lot. 50% of the time, the mind wanders. So our starting view is not that our mind won't wander. And if you think, and I hear this often, I can't meditate, I can't do mindfulness practice because I just happen to have a busy mind. And I was like, welcome to your human experience. Yeah. We all do. Not that you're not special, but the mind wanders. If you're conscious and awake and alive, your mind will wander. And that's not a problem. In fact, knowing that that happens is a very good set point because you don't feel like there's something wrong with you in some right. sense. And, you know, knowing that it's happening in the context of trying to do a task can help be helpful to you because you're like, oh, there I go again. Let me get back. Mm -hmm. So the practice is essentially that. It's So you might uh, decide the period of time you're going to do this and then um, start out by picking the context that's really self-supportive, sitting in an upright, alert posture. This is really about kind of waking up um, fully, attentively, then trying to relax or fall asleep, though it can actually be really helpful to calm down to fall asleep too. And then for the period of time, let's say a minute that you're going to do this, you're just going to allow yourself to breathe naturally and at a normal, natural pace and notice that you're breathing. And then we're going to bring in the attentional component. We ask people to notice what is most prominent when they're breathing. What's most salient? Is it the coolness of air coming in and out of your nostrils? Something about your in your physiology and your body that you find prominent. And then for the period of this practice, you're just going to take that flashlight of attention and direct it there. It's your target. That's where you're going to hold it. And after you do that for a bit, you know, maybe even a second or two, you might notice that your mind has wandered away. That floodlight is bright and receptive and sees, ah, not there. And then all you need to do in that moment when you notice that your mind has wandered is gently return it. So, like I said, it has many of the same components that you described for TM, and I think they share a lot. But I wanted to point out that what we did at that short exercise, focus, notice, redirect, is a, kind of like a push-up for our attention system, tackling all three. And so this mindfulness of breathing, or what I'm, I'm actually calling it in the book, I call it the finder flashlight practice. Because what it helps us do, what we're exercising over and over again is, where the heck am I in this moment? Oh, Let's get back on track. It helps to have a back on track destination, 
because then you have something to do once you notice that you've mm-hmm. wandered away. But what you're cultivating is both the ability to hold the flashlight, redirect it, but then a second category would be notice what's going on. And now what, that's sort of the starter practice in some sense. And then when in the series of practices that I offer in the book, the next one is to just even more fully practice noticing without a target destination. That's something called an open monitoring practice. But I think this should be a good one for people that have had experience with mindfulness to just, even if you've been practicing for a long time, to think about it and conceptualize it in this from this perspective of attention, that it's actually a little attentional workout. Um, and given what we've already said regarding the power of attention, its impact on our ability to think and feel and connect, we're f- refueling this very precious brain resource by by exercising in this way. One of the things that meditation helps me um, understand, rather than judging how often my mind wanders, is what it is that I'm worried about. Mm, right. It gives me information on, oh, you know, you've been thinking about the podcast for 19 <laughs> of the 20 minutes that you've been <laughs> meditating. What is there a fear there? You know, yeah, is there yeah. a tool for you to deal with the fear? Is the fear real mm-hmm. or is it imagined? Might it help? talking to people about, you know, potential solutions, or are you just future tripping? I love that. It's so true, because though we are committed to notice the mind wander and redirect it, the noticing opens up a whole world. We get access to information we didn't know we were holding. And even if it's not done, the deliberation and the conceptualization and problem solving isn't done during the meditation practice itself. It certainly feeds a lot of much more productive ways of addressing those kind of ideas that keep coming up repeatedly, right? Like Mm -hmm. what's on, what's on, um, I don't know, what's on our playlist right now over and over again. And because there's another aspect to it that I think is tied to what you were saying, it gives you a lot of information. But what didn't happen in that moment when you had the worry or fear regarding the podcast, you didn't just jump up and start doing stuff. You actually allowed it, probably returned to it, returned to your breath or whatever your focus was, maybe your mantra, and then you kept going. And the other aspect that it gives us is a type of mental hardiness or mental toughness. Like no matter what it is that is occurring, no matter how strong the pull of the fear or the worry, I'm here for it. I'm right here for it. And I think that gives us a confidence about our ability to do anything uh, a lot more robustly. Give us another practice. So, you know, I would say the other one I call um, river of thought. And this is this category of open monitoring that I was describing. And open monitoring, it really is what it sounds like. You are open. You're really focusing on that floodlight experience. You're, You're... you're on task when you allow whatever's happening to happen. And your eyes are closed during Again, this? Again, closed or lowered, quiet space, supportive environment. and um, But just to describe kind of broadly what it would be, it's this idea that the task itself is to allow thoughts, feelings, and sensations, everything that the mind does, to just occur. Well, you're, when you find that you've kind of gone down a rabbit hole that you actually are pointing the flashlight to specific content and you're following a train of thought, that's when you want to kind of redirect yourself back uh, to, to the, the floodlight pres- to the, to the flood and to the present moment. So I call it river of thought because kind of I want people to paint this image that 
uh, you know, even as they close their eyes to just get started with the practice, that they're sitting on a nice, beautiful, soft rock right at the river's uh, on the bank of a river, and their mind and their phenomenology is the river itself. Thoughts, feelings, sensations kind of flow by, and they are steady and stable right there witnessing it all. You know, when a beautiful fish is seen, you don't go chase it. Mm-hmm. If you see a leaf, you, you don't get too mesmerized by it. It's like, there it is, and there it goes. And that also provides like a workout for this floodlight, um, but it gives this other type of mental toughness and mental resilience that I was, I was describing a moment ago of witnessing our mind in a self-supportive manner without getting overly caught up in any of its mental content. Anything else you'd like to uh, share before we wrap up? Well, I just want to tell you, I love what you're doing. I love the conversations oh, that you. you are promoting in our world, which they're so needed. And I think what I hope that people take away from our conversation and from this book is really get a sense that, you know, we know in our culture about physical activity, we know we need to exercise our bodies to stay healthy. And there are things we can do, just like we talked about with these meditation practices, to exercise our minds to keep them healthy. And not only to, to recover from difficult difficulty in terms of our psychological health, but once we are, we stay that way by continuing to exercise regularly. Your book is called Peak Mind, and it uh, should be out by the time this episode airs. Uh, if people want to know more about you, where can they find you on social media, yeah. or website? Where? Yeah, I'm easy to find if you can remember six letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first name, A-M-I-S-H-I, Amishi.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Many thanks to Dr. Ja. And we have those links under the show notes if you want to check them out. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's dive into some surveys. This is uh, from the Fears survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Billy. She writes, I fear that my fears won't live up to the other fears you've read. I fear that I will never have a good night's sleep again without the drugs. I fear that I will go my entire life without making a single positive influence on the world. I fear that I'm not taking good enough care of my cat and she will die as a result. I fear that everyone is only tolerating me, but I'm really a miserable person to be around. I fear the fact that my depression and anxiety have blocked out or changed my memories. I don't trust the things I remember. I fear that I've gone too far and ruined my life regarding my weight. 
I fear I'll break any piece of furniture I sit on. I fear that everyone is judging me because of the way I look. I'm not vain, just extremely embarrassed. I fear that I will have a heart attack and die like my father in my 40s. I fear that I smell bad. I fear that no one cares what I fear. I fear that my mother is going to die and I'll have been too spiteful to have called her to tell her I love her. I fear losing my sight or hearing and not being able to care for myself. I fear being alone. I fear the love I have of cutting my arm and seeing the little rivers of blood running across my skin. And I fear being the fat girl everyone sees fall down in winter. Wow, those are heavy. No pun intended. Thank you for sharing those. It sounds like you are keeping a lot of, of stuff trapped inside. And um, I really hope you can find somebody to open up to because, you know, our, our brains are so fucking mean. And if we, did, it's like we don't, if we don't have a counterpoint to that mean voice in our head, we believe it. You sound like a really nice, sensitive person. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, When Will My Life Start? And uh, she writes, Dear Paul, I'm going to try to explain what's going on in the shortest way possible. When I was 25, my fiancé of almost nine years suddenly passed away. For financial reasons, I had to move back in with my not-so-nice father. He's at an age where he's going to start needing help, and now I feel trapped. I'll be 30 next year, and he still treats me like I'm 16. I would get a place of my own, but I do not believe I would be able to afford an apartment by myself, and all of my friends are married with children. And again, he is starting to need help and plays the guilt card. He does not have any friends or really any hobbies and just relies on me. He does not want me to have my own life, and if I talk... Uh, to men, it's like I am 16 again. He relies on me for companionship and gets upset if I have plans away from home. He talks down to me and doesn't think he's doing anything wrong, yet he expects me to be there whenever he needs it because I live here and I'm his daughter. Any advice on how to deal with his predicament and or him? Thanks so much. First of all, I'm sorry that you're dealing with that. And, um, he he sounds like a real gaslighter, and it is so hard to unwire the wiring installed by a gaslighting parent or caregiver. And I think a really great place to start would be for you to get into therapy or a support group for people who grew up in dysfunctional families. I know there are some great 12-step support groups for children uh, of dysfunctional families. Um, ACOA, um, which is uh, Adult Children of uh, Alcoholics or Dysfunction, is a, a great uh, support group to learn boundaries and practice self-care and begin to be the parent that we never were to ourselves. Um, I hear I hear great things about it. So that might be worth checking out, but as far as the one thing I would not suggest is trying to get your dad to see things your way and hoping for him to change. It is so important for you to take care of yourself. 
And just because your dad needs help doesn't mean he has the right to treat you like shit. And your part in it is deciding whether or not you're going to stand around and let him treat you like shit. And that can be a really hard thing when we, when we have believed their gaslighting our whole lives. That guilt gets buried so deep in us and it feels so real. And, uh, you know, there's a saying, nobody can push your buttons like your parents because they installed them. But thank you for sharing that, and I, I really hope you get some some help and some support around that because that is too big of a thing to try to handle on our own. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Difficult Child. Um, she identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse, and uh, one of them she reported, and the other one she's not sure. Um, she's been physically and emotionally abused. Um, really, really, I mean, she categorizes her childhood as pretty dysfunctional. It's way more than that, in, in my opinion. She had really verbally abusive mother, and, um, you know, for example, I'm just going to kind of condense this, but um, completely emotionally abandoned by her parents. And the thing that she sought comfort in were these scraps of material that she would give names and, and they were soothing to her. And, uh, and her parents would throw them out. And her mom even laughed about throwing one of them out when she mentioned it later as a, as a teenager. Uh, she writes, it was then that she finally admitted that she had burnt it with the rubbish. She s said sorry, but then laughed it off with one of those mocking, how ridiculous laughs. Yep, just rip my heart out and stomp on it again. Why don't you? Sometimes I say I was born with a broken heart, and I know that's an exaggeration, exaggeration but the pervasive feeling of my living memory is that of having my heart broken and there being only a great big black hole left in its place. Any positive experiences with the abusers? And this is the, the reason I wanted to, to read this. Seeing my primary abuser was my mother. My feelings have always been terribly complicated. She died two years ago in the middle of the night. And as soon as I found out, I rushed to the hospital because I wanted to get there before her body went cold. For the first time in my life, I was able to hold her for as long as I wanted, and she couldn't push me away. The softest and warmest my mother ever felt to me was when she was dead. I'm still dealing with these complicated feelings, and I'm sure I will be for a long, long time. Wow. Wow. It is so deeply profound and I'm so sorry that that was the childhood that you that you experienced it's good that you're you're opening up about it though you know that is it's going to drive the bus you know if we don't open up about it it is you know we tell ourselves oh I'm you know I'm just I'm not letting it get to me it's going to get to you it's going to affect stuff Thank you for sharing that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, ugh, 
frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts. She asks, why don't you like frosted Pop-Tarts? Well, they're horrible. They have an unnecessary amount of sugar on them. There's sugar in the filling. There's sugar in the breading part, whatever you want to call it. Why do you need that horrible doesn't even taste good, the, the, the sugar frosting. Were you hurt by a frosted Pop-Tart in the past? Yes, I was. I was. I went to an all-Pop-Tart high school, and the frosted Pop-Tarts were the popular kids. And my only friend was an unfrosted Pop-Tart who came to my aid quite regularly. And they passed away my sophomore year. They were burned to death in a toaster. The stupidest joke I've ever made. Do you realize frosted is superior to plain, right? Question mark. No, it's not. What would you do if presented with a frosted Pop-Tart? Just scrape it off with your fork while maintaining eye contact with the person who lovingly gifted you that treat? No, I wouldn't make eye contact. I would drop it. I would either drop it or I would throw it at their neck like a martial arts weapon. Honestly, I've never met someone who didn't like frosted Pop-Tarts. Well, I'm sorry that you grew up in a house where the doors were locked and you couldn't get outside and meet anyone with common sense. Perhaps something significant occurred in a past life. Maybe after the Kellogg strike is over, you can learn to love frosted Pop-Tarts again. Uh, You know what? There's a train leaving for hell, and I'll give you a ride to the station. I truly do not understand how you can think that that frosting adds to it. It boggles my mind. I have to assume that you're a person that doesn't like pie because really what an unfrosted Pop-Tart is, is it's a cheap way of getting your pie fix, your fruit pie fix. And who, who wants frosting on a pie? An animal. That's right. Am I calling you an animal? Yes. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Sugary. This is such a great question. She asked, have you ever wanted to put distance between yourself and a loved one that had mental health struggles but couldn't or wouldn't get help or only wanted to be pacified? Such an important question. And yes, I have. And it took me decades to realize then I'm not a terrible person for separating myself from somebody who didn't want help, who drained me, and that it was important for me to take care of my own mental health rather than trying to save somebody else because we can't save other people. And it's hard, but there are things that that there are ways to express ourselves and the way that I expressed myself to a friend of mine who was experiencing psychosis and living on the street and convinced that the government was out to get her and that people were stealing you know breaking into her hotel room and stealing from her Um, that every license plate she saw, you know, had 666 in it. 
You know, I just, uh, I said, I can't watch you do this and, and be unwilling to get help for yourself. I can't watch it. It's too painful. And I love you, but I, until you want to get help, um, I, I can't have contact with you. But if you do decide you want help, I will drive you to the psychiatrist. I will help you do whatever, do whatever. And I'm happy to say that she, after bouncing around in jail, um, she is taking her meds and she's back to being the person that I, that I knew and loved and I have contact with her. This is a very dark survey. It's from the Fears survey and it's very graphic. It's filled out by a woman who calls herself, Show Me Yours. She writes, I'm afraid that fragility is a part of my nature and something I will never fully overcome. I'm afraid I'll never defeat, in parentheses, be rid of, the impulse to follow every hot person I see, man, woman, or child, grab them by the shoulders and demand to know why they are doing this to me. I'm afraid that the moment I stop suffering from some pathological tick, I am no longer a useful ally for other people going through the same thing. I'm afraid that I will never appear to be who I am, never be able to come across right. I'm not afraid of racism, but it really sucks and causes me a lot of secret pain. I'm afraid my butt will never be the right size. I'm afraid of going jogging because it bounces so dramatically. I'm afraid of attracting unwanted attention. I'm also afraid of being completely ignored or worse, seen and dismissed. I'm very afraid of being replaced. Replaced. I'm afraid America's beauty ideals will never evolve in my lifetime and that any biological children of mine will either be considered ugly or seen as sex objects. I'm afraid because the three people most formative to my coming of age are all dead. My grandmother, my first boyfriend, and my first poetry professor. They all died too young and it feels like I must be next. It also feels like I killed them by not being a good enough granddaughter, girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, or student. I'm afraid my childhood rapist is still somewhere out there hurting children. I heard he was working at a preschool. He was never charged with anything because his daughters and their mother defended him to this day, even though he orally raped all four of us, me, my sister, and his two daughters, our best friends up until I was three and we all learned how to talk. Mommy, what is the white pea in the potty that I spit out? I could read and write by age four. I remember him standing there, covering his dick with both hands, his fat brown belly above my head height, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, while I vomited his ejaculate into the toilet. I'm afraid how I feel when these memories come up. I'm afraid of how vivid they are. I'm afraid that I have gone so long without therapy or diagnoses that my whole psychological profile can't be deciphered anymore. It feels like there's a statue of limitations on that shit. Unfortunately, I'm afraid I will have to go through life allowing others to just call me crazy because a diagnosis by now is a distant dream and the way I cope feels natural. For example, sleeping too much or too little eating too much or too little, spending too much or too little time alone, etc. I'm afraid that I wouldn't be able to find a super smart black woman, uh, preferably with a very painful background, to be my therapist even if I tried. 
I'm afraid I'll ultimately have substance abuse issues like my mom, be too unstable to experience or deserve psychedelic transcendence of any kind, and become an adulterous sex addict like my dad. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, as painful as that is to hear and to read. Um, I think it's important, you know, I know some people, when they hear a survey that dark or that graphic, say, you know, why do you, why do you read stuff that's that, that triggering? Because that is somebody's reality and You know, I think part of our duty as citizens on this planet is to witness other people's pain. You know, not to the point that it crosses our boundaries or drains us, but it's important for people's experiences to be validated and heard and for them to feel seen. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the love survey filled out by it's Dr. Spaghetti Bolognese, do you? And they write, I love when a noise stops, which I didn't even realize was irritating me, like a humming dishwasher or a lawnmower. That is a great one. When I squeeze out an ingrown hair and it just pops out smoothly. (laughs) When I floss my teeth and get a really good stinky, gunky bit out. When I get home and take off that annoying bra, seriously, why do we keep wearing those chest depressors? When I make myself exercise, even though I'm depressed, and at some point during the workout, I feel those first endorphins start to kick in, and I sometimes even cry because I'm so proud of myself for getting to that point of working out despite the depression fighting against me. Oh, that is a great one. The way my daughter rests her hand on my arm when I'm reading her a book. Oh, that is so sweet. Watching the washing drying outside in the sun on a warm, windy day. When someone acknowledges how hard I'm trying to be a good mom and tells me I'm doing a good job. I do not have much family contact, so I don't hear this often, but every once in a while, a stranger will make a kind comment to me about my parenting, which I never, ever forget. Thank you to those strangers. You don't know what those few words meant to me. Wow, that is just beautiful. And I love when you guys just capture capture moments that we don't think about or we we don't experience or we do experience and we forgot how awesome they are, especially the little ones. This is a happy moment filled out by Gallows Guffaws. I think this could be uh, an awful moment as well. Um, he writes, I'm 29 years old now, and I found out that my now ex-wife uh, has been having an affair. Uh, I freak out and spend the night driving around the hill towns of Massachusetts listening to 80s hip-hop. I park and, and can't. I park and try to sleep but can't, so I drive 30 miles to my parents' house and park far enough from their house to not be seen, but close enough for me to see when my father awakes and turns on the kitchen light to make his breakfast. 
I creep to the back door, give it a knock, and he lets me in, looking confused and concerned. I tell him what happened. He hugs me, and we go to the porch to talk. We had never been close or talked much about feelings, but he compassionately listened to me prattle on for a couple of hours. I asked him to please not tell my mother, as she already disliked my ex-wife, and he honors my wishes. Things changed between us in that moment, and I'm glad that the final nine years of his life, we had that unspoken understanding. Wow. Wow. It's such a great example that it, it's never too late. And, you know, when we open up to somebody, we give them an opportunity to reveal their character. And maybe it's a negative thing, and we get the information that this person isn't safe, or maybe like in that example that that person is capable of compassion and and connection, and it's, oh, I love it. And then finally, this is an awful moment filled out by Gemma. She writes, I lost my libido this year after a traumatic breakup, so I decided to buy a fancy new vibrator to try and reclaim my sexuality. I've got to assume that a fancy vibrator uh, comes with a cup of tea. And uh, <laughs> and one of the characters from Downton Abbey. Uh, I opened it last night at 11 p.m., feeling really excited to try it out. The box had all these cheery statements on it about how happy their customers are with it and how using it can improve one's mental health. But then I realized I'd need a AA battery for it. I couldn't find one. I texted my neighbor to ask if he had one. I stood around in his apartment for half an hour while he looked for one and made excruciating small talk with me about his former pet frogs. You can't make this shit up. He never found it. So then I went out into the street, ripped off my front bike light, and broke it open on the sidewalk to take one of the batteries out. Then I realized that those were actually AAA and I just ruined my light. Finally, I gave up and drove all the way to the drugstore and bought a jumbo pack of AA batteries. I got home well after midnight, determined to finally have a good time with this thing. In the end, I used it for two minutes and then burst into tears. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's so fantastic. <laughs> I ordered an orgasm and they brought me tears. That's a t-shirt. I hope you guys got something out of this episode. And if you're out there and you're struggling, uh, just never forget that you are a part of something larger than yourself, whether you feel it or think it. It is, there, there is something in the universe that we can connect to that can change our lives. If we can just get the nerve up to take those first few scary steps into the, into the void. And it's worth it. It really is. And never forget, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in know some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.